seated. As you do so, if you'll join me taking our copy of God's Word and we turn to our passage for this morning, for the week ahead, we find that in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 43. Acts chapter 9, 36 through 43. So this morning we come back to our study of the book of Acts. We've been out of it for a couple months. As we do so, I was reminded of a story that was told about the great reformer John Calvin. John Calvin was in Geneva as a pastor of the church there, often referred to as the pastor of Geneva. After being there for some time, the city leaders began to take exception with Calvin over his preaching. They didn't like his preaching through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. They didn't like sometimes the way he applied the Bible to city leaders and how they could better lead. So it's eventually led the politicians to get together and decide to kick Calvin and his family out. Not only from the church, but from the city. So imagine, here you are, uh, you're just trying to pastor a church, and the mayor and the town council and the county council get so mad at you, they say, not only do we want you out of the church, uh, we want you out of the county. Get away from us. And that's what happened to Calvin and his family. So they ended up going to Strasbourg, France for about three years. Over those three years, the city leaders began to hear back from people in the community, began to hear people from the church, began to realize the error of their ways. And so they sent a letter to Calvin, said, we please come back. And Calvin didn't think about it, to pray about it. He did so, but he did so reluctantly. He comes back and he finished out his ministry there. I'll tell you this story for this reason. His last Sunday, therefore, he was exiled. He was going through a sermon on the book of Psalms. Finished it up, gave the benediction, was kicked out that week. Three years later, he comes back. His first Sunday in the pulpit, he picks, he picks right up with the next song and keeps going. No introduction, no follow-up, nothing else. Just went on with the study of the book of Psalms. I am no John Calvin, and we've only been away from our study of the book of Acts for three months, but I think it would do us good if it only be in three months for a brief review of where we are so far in our study of the book of Acts. It was written by Luke, and through divine inspiration and guidance, he writes this book to give an account of the early church. So far he has detailed how it was God who gave birth to the church through the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And he's shown how, how God then grew this church from those about 120 people located in the upper room to now thousands upon thousands. And Luke tells this story uh, through showing how God is the catalyst for his great growth, uh, a great growth of Christians both numerically and spiritually. And so much so that uh, there's persecution in the church led by Stephen. And the church scatters. But as the church scatters, what are they doing? The Christians are taking the gospel out to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. Now no longer is the church contained in Jerusalem. Now the gospel is going forth and untold numbers of people are hearing the preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're told there's, there's baptisms, there's healings. Even the great hater of the church, Stephen, I'm sorry, Saul, Saul's a persecuted church, he kills Stephen. The great persecutor church, Saul, has now been converted. And so through every sermon, every Bible story, every sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel is spreading. Outward and outward, numerous upon numerous people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and responding in faith. 
as we see in our passage this morning, there are times that God uses miracles to do his ministry. Because ministries, I'm sorry, miracles can open the door for hard hearts and minds to listen to the gospel to which they didn't respond to in faith. So we'll look at this account in more in depth this morning in Acts chapter 9. Uh, but let's pray together as we come before God's word. Lord, we, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds so we may both hear and believe. We may receive and rest upon Jesus as he's offered to us here in this part of your holy word. And we ask this now in the name of the one who all the word is about, the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 9, beginning in verse 36, going through 43. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed. And turned to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Life is precious. I think that's something we would all hear and believe to. We would, we would give our, our, our agreement to that, that, that life is precious. We, we think of that at, at a birth. And a newborn baby, life is precious. Or when somebody has been very sick and, 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 near, and near death and they come back and we think, life really is precious. And we go to a funeral and we think, life is precious. We know that all of life is precious. And that's a statement and a sentiment that, that informs a biblical Christian's view of, of all issues of life. Issues such as, as abortion and adoption. What, what, what motivates us in our these views is the fact that life is precious. But if that should lead us to asking the question, what is it that makes life precious? Is it just life itself that makes it precious? Is it who possesses it? What is it that makes life precious? Well, the better question is to ask isn't what, but is who. According to the Bible, according to truth, who makes life precious? The answer is God. Life is precious because of God. Life is precious because God is the giver of life. We see that throughout Scripture, such as Psalm 36, 9. We, we see it in, in the creation story that God created and gave life to all things. We see it in the creation of man and woman that, that God formed them out of the dirt of the ground and he breathed life into Adam and then he took that rib out of Eve and he gave her life. Life is precious because God is the one who gives life. And his word testifies to that, that he is the one who knits us together in our mother's wombs. 
That God is one who, who fearfully and wonderfully makes us. That not only are we made by God, we are made in the image of the triune God and, and knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And, and, and that is why it is the Christian's duty to respect and honor all life is the commandments. You shall not murder is a commandment of respect and honor of life. That's the Christian's duty. We're to honor and respect all life because all life comes from God. God is the giver of life. God is the sustainer of life. God is the protector of life. Life is precious because life comes from God alone. And when it's interesting to think about the work of Satan, what does Satan want to do? He doesn't want to give life, does he? He wants to take life. He wants to ruin life. He wants to take something that's so precious and he wants to sully it. He wants to dirty it. He wants to make it into trash because life is precious because life comes from God. And as we go through the book of Acts, as we see how the details are given of the church growing, we see how this value of life plays a part in this kingdom work. We see in our passage this morning around a woman who has two names. She's named Tabitha and Dorcas. Tabitha is her, her Aramaic name and the Greek is Dorcas. I think I prefer the Aramaic name. I think Tabitha is prettier, at least to my ears. Um, but she was a resident of Joppa. Joppa is a town on the coast. It's a well-known seaport. And all we really know of Tabitha is contained in this one sentence. She was full of good works and acts of charity. That's a summary of her life. So when, when Luke goes out, and y'all, I'm sorry to be playing my glasses. They're not fitting right this morning. I think it can be so frustrating. Sorry. So I'm trying not to mess with them too much. But as Luke goes out and he's doing interviews, and he's talking to people about this, and he, he's talking to all the family and friends about Tabitha, this is the summary they give him. Oh, Tabitha? She was full of good works. She is a wonderful lady. She is faithful in acts of charity. That's the summary of her life in one sentence. Now I want us to pause there for a moment. And I want us to think through what would be said of you and me. At the end of your life, what would be the one sentence summary of your life? If on your tombstone there is only room for one sentence to be engraved, what would that sentence be? How would your life be summarized? A year, two years, three years after your death, what, would your, what do you think your family and friends, how do you think they would summarize your life? What is your life in one sentence? But the bigger question in that is, would anything about Christ be said in that summary? Can you with confidence think that one year, two years, three years after your death, when, people, when somebody comes and says, Tell me about James. What was he like? You put your name in here. What was he, what, what was he like? Would anything be said about Jesus? Would anything say, be said about your faith, your love of Jesus? Would Jesus be a part of it? Is Jesus part of the summary of life you're living out now? And I think that's worth thinking through because tomorrow is not guaranteed. The Bible tells us very clearly our life is just a mist. It's God who's numbered our days. 
right here, right now, 11.30 a.m., February 11, 2024, is Jesus part of the summary of life that you are choosing to live out? Because it was for Tabitha. When, she, when her family and friends were asked, tell me about Tabitha. She was wonderful. She was full of good works. She was faithful in her acts of charity. This is the summary of a woman who loved Jesus. She loved Jesus because Jesus first loved her. And because of that love, she responds in love and she chose to live her life for him alone, to glorify him and to enjoy him. Her good works were faithful works that flowed from her seeking to love the Lord her God with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength. Her acts of charity were because she sought to love her neighbor as herself. That is the summary of the life of Tabitha. And what a wonderful summary of a life that is. And that helps explains why there is such great mourning of her death. There are many who have been affected by this woman. And, and you know, essentially she's a nobody, right? We don't read about her in the other Gospels. We don't read about her in Hebrews. We don't read about her in Revelation. It's just here. She's essentially a nobody. But because of her faith, because of how she chose to live for Jesus, here she is in sacred scripture. And here is a room filled with people who have been affected by her. Affected by this essential nobody and her faithfulness and piety. And it seems that she had a particular affection for the needy, such as widows. Here she is, laying there dead. And the room is filled with all these widows from Joppa. And they don't show up into Hamdits. They showed up holding tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made for them by her own hands. Think of that. Here's this body laying on a table in the middle of the room. And the room is filled with women. They're crying, they're sobbing, they're weeping, they're wailing, and they're wiping their tears with garments. Not Gucci or Chanel garments. I'm assuming those are still fancy high-end names. I don't know, but not fancy garments from high-end stores. This little old lady, needle and thread, made this one lady a tunic. And this other lady a shawl. And this other lady some slippers. And they all show up holding these gifts from Tabitha, a symbol of her faith. Do you understand what Luke is doing here? He's detailing for us a life that's well lived in and for Jesus. This was a life that was precious to God. In a life that was precious to others. And now this is where Peter enters into the story. He's still in Lydon. We'd healed a man who was paralyzed. The gospel was, was spreading. Tabitha dies and, and they realize, oh, Peter is, is just down the road at Joppa. So he sends the disciples. It's only a 10 mile journey, about what, two, three hour brisk walk. So they send a couple of people and they go to Peter and they say, please come. And you need to come right away. This lady has died. And to Peter's credit, says he gets word without haste. Like, I don't, 
And I don't even think he finished his meal for the day, but without haste, he, he gets up and he makes the journey to the coast. And he doesn't, he doesn't go to a store for us, he doesn't go to the beach, he goes straight to the upper room, and he goes into a place where the preparations for burial had already begun. This lady is dead. She's not dying. She's dead. They've washed her body. They're preparing to put spices on her. They're pre preparing to, to, to wrap her up. And as we said, they're gathered there to mourn. We, we, we've been in situations like that. There's groups gathered around the room. And over here, they're, they're, they're silently crying. Over here, they're talking. Man, the last time I saw her, so wonderful. And then this group over here is, look at this, look at this beautiful tunic she made me. It's just, it, 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 it's, it's a sad scene. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's an understandable sadness taking place because Tabitha was faithful, she was pious, she was a key member of the church and Christian community, and here she is dead. And this is what Peter walks into. He listens to the stories. He hugs some of the women. And then he says, I need all of you to leave. He empties the room. There's nothing. There's nobody left except him and dead Tabitha. Before we get to the miracle, we need to notice what Peter does first. Look again at me in verse 40. Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and he prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. What's the key thing? What's the key thing Peter does here? Prays. For anything else, he gets on his knees and he prays. The faithful follower of Jesus, the one called by Jesus to feed God's sheep, one of the pillars of the early church. This is Peter. And what does Peter do? He prays. Before anything else, Peter has committed himself to pray. There's probably something for us to learn from that, isn't there? How often are we tempted to do and then pray? How often we're tempted to get going and then we go, oh yeah, I should probably pray about that. Not Peter, and really, not any Christian. Prayer should be what we commit ourselves to. We pray, and then we go, and we do. We don't know anything about the prayer. You may pray, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't, we don't know. You may pray the Lord's Prayer. We don't know what he prayed. But in that prayer, the Holy Spirit obviously makes something known to Peter. Because as soon as Peter says, Amen, he looks at the body and he says just two words, Tabitha, arise. And she did. She opened her eyes. She took in that breath. She looked at Peter and she sat up. This is reminiscent of other miracles in the Bible. We think of Elijah. We think of Elisha. We think of Jesus calling out Lazarus from the tomb. We think of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. And all those stories Summed up here with Peter tells us this. 
It wasn't by Peter's power that that, that Tabitha was raised. It wasn't by his own will. It wasn't by anything in Peter that she was raised from the dead. It was God working through Peter. It was the will and the power of the triune God at work through Peter to raise up that dear woman. At that point, he was merely a conduit. He was merely an instrument of the mighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be at work. It was God who was at work in that upper room. It was the giver of life, the provider of life, the sustainer of life, and the protector of life who was at work. And think about what Scripture tells us about Tabitha. This woman was made in the image of God. This woman was knit together by God in her mother's womb. This woman was fearfully and wonderfully made by her Father in heaven. And this woman in whose God called to have faith in her. And what happens? She is brought back to life by the giver, the provider, the sustainer, and the protector of life. Life is precious to God. Her life was precious to God. And the confidence we have is that all of our lives are precious to God. All of us have been made in the image of God. All of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made. All of us have been knit together by God. All of us have had the Son give up His life for our life. Life is precious to God. And because life is precious, God does what only He can do, bring His dear daughter back to life. Because life is precious to God. But there's no period at the end of that story there, is there? There's more to this story. Because what happens next? He gave her his hand, raised her up. Calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Look, we, a story like this is going to spread. Us, us Winsburians know this. We know how fast the story is can spread. We know that we could go to Food Line this afternoon. And we could be in the cereal aisle. And we could sneeze twice. And by the time we get home, we may have a phone call from somebody going, Kuntuntite, God bless you. I heard you were sneezing in the Food Line. Are you dying? Can I bring you some chicken noodle soup? Right? We know how fast news can spread. We can imagine how fast the story of a dead woman being brought back to life is going to spread. It's going to spread at the speed of light. But what does Luke emphasize? He emphasizes the results. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Why did God raise this woman back to life? Because her life was precious, and spiritual life is precious. The gospels heard, people came to faith, the kingdom of God continued to spread. From, the, from Jerusalem to the coast, God's church is growing as the gospel goes out and Peter believe, or people believe. And here, God uses the raising of a dead woman to soften mind and hearts to the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. Once again, we see the pattern that remarkable miracles leads not just to marvel the miracles, but to genuine conversions as the gospel spreads. And I would argue with any of you this morning that this is the main point of this passage. This miracle is wonderful. 
was even more wonderful as on that day more reservations for heaven were made. As precious as physical life is to God, so is spiritual life. Look, God didn't create Adam and Eve so he can win the blue ribbon first place in the heavenly science fair, right? To show up everybody else and say, oh, great, you made a volcano, or great, you can turn on a light bulb with a potato. Look at me, I made man, I'm a woman. That's not why he created Adam and Eve. He created them to have a relationship with them, to commune with them, to walk with them, to talk with them. And what happens is they sinned. That relationship is broken. But what's the first thing God promises to them? A redeemer. A redeemer to heal this broken relationship. And from that point forward, we see God leading and instructing and guiding his people spiritually. Why do we have the Ten Commandments? For our spiritual good. Why did they have the sacrificial system for their spiritual good? Why did they have the tabernacle and the temple for their spiritual good? Why did they have the Levitical priest for their spiritual good? All of it was for their spiritual good. We talked about that this past Wednesday evening in our Bible study. We looked at the book of Leviticus. It's a, an instruction manual of how to be God's people. And be holy as he is holy. There's a spiritual component to that. God cares about your soul and my soul. And one of the greatest lies that has entered into the church is that Jesus merely came to make sure we have a blessed and comfortable materialistic life. That's a bold lie to make. When you think about the example of Jesus, so poor he had no pillow to lay his head upon. And yet we're, we're going to be so... So arrogant as to say, well, Jesus died for me so I can have that new car. So I can have that nice house. So I can be fat and happy and comfortable. Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus came to save our souls. Jesus came to be the atonement of sin so that our souls will be redeemed by our great Redeemer. Our souls are precious to God. One of my all-time favorite hymns is about that very thing. It says, Jesus, lover of my soul. It ends with this stanza. Plenteous grace, plenteous grace with thee is found, grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound, make and keep me pure within. Thou of life the fountain art, let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart for all eternity. God cares so much about our souls that he takes our spiritual hearts of stone and he gives us spiritual hearts of flesh. God loves our souls so much that he gave his only son to be the grace that redeems our souls. Life is precious to God, but especially our spiritual life. With that in mind, let me ask you to consider this as we close this morning. What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with the physical life that God has blessed you with? What are you doing with the spiritual life that he has offered you in and through the Son, Jesus Christ? What are you doing with the limited time on earth that God has appointed to you? What are you choosing to do with your life and soul? Here we see what Tabitha chose. Faithful follower of Jesus. Faithfully serving others. Could your life could your faith be used by God
as a catalyst for others to come to know him as their Lord and Savior? Can others look to you and say, that's the faith I want. That's the Christian life I strive to live. Life is precious. May we treat it so, physically and spiritually, so our faith and life can be used by God as an instrument to spread the gospel and further the kingdom for the glory and joy of our God. Let's pray together.